Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. We pray that we might have a greater vision of Jesus Christ today from this book, this ancient book that was written thousands of years ago, but penned by the Holy Spirit through your servant. And Lord, open up our eyes to see wonderful things out of your law today. We pray that we might also have the experience of coming to the rock that was smitten to receive the life-giving waters. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. 1 through 7. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. <coughs> Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now this morning we rejoin the children of Israel as they're traveling through the wilderness on the way to Canaan, to the promised land. The children of Israel have already been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb that was put over their doorposts. They've already been delivered from their enemies, Pharaoh and his armies, through God's mighty hand and his outstretched arm. They've already been led by the pillar of cloud and fire from one place to another as God is directing them. God has already sweetened the waters that were bitter at Marah that they couldn't drink. He sweetened them so that they could drink from them. And God has been providing bread from heaven every day in the form of manna, to nourish them and give them strength. And you know, their historical experience is all of our spiritual experience. Because we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been delivered from Satan, sin, and death by God's power, right? We have the ministry of the Holy Spirit that leads us in our journey to heaven from one place and stage to another. Christ is our manna, and we feed upon Him through His Word, and it nourishes our soul and strengthens us for the journey ahead. So their historical experience is our spiritual experience. And that brings us, in their wanderings, to chapter 17, when the children of Israel come to Rephidim. Verse 1 says, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. <coughs> now notice, they're journeying according to the command of the Lord. The Lord is leading them. The Lord led them to Rephidim. The Lord brought them to a place where there was no water. Now if you have in your mind the idea that God only does good things and if there's anything bad in your life, it's always of the devil. It's not from God. That's false theology. God directed them to a place where there was no water. And God will take you into places where you will experience trial. And it's the Lord who's done it. Because the Lord knows what's good for us. You see, God is training up His people through these trials in the wilderness. And God is training us up, and He's making us stronger, and He's helping us to see more of God and His glory through the trials and the afflictions that come our way. So it was at God's command. And again, it says there was no water. This is like a replay of chapter 15. We had the almost the exact same thing back in chapter 15. 
In verse 22, it says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, do you remember what they did when they found no water the first time? They grumbled. It says... Uh, verse 24, so the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Six weeks later, there's almost an exact repetition of that earlier situation. Now, back in chapter 15 and verse 25, it says, there God tested them. So when they had no water the first time, it was a test from God. How are they going to do? Will they trust God to provide or will they grumble and complain? Well, God gave them a pop quiz and they all flunked because they all grumbled. Nobody had any faith. Well, six weeks later, God gives them another pop quiz. And what do they do? They grumble again. Well, I should actually, we can go back to chapter 16. Okay, in chapter 16, when there was no, nothing to eat, it says the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. So they flunked the first time, they flunked the second time, and then in chapter 17, they flunked the third time. Now, we think, when are these guys going to learn their lesson? How many, how many tests is it going to take for them to get it? But then I start thinking about myself. And I think... You know, the Lord has given me a lot of the same tests over and over and over. Sometimes I pass, sometimes I still fail, and the Lord keeps giving them to me. We're just like them. We're not any better than the children of Israel. We, we, we walk in the same sandals that they did. And in spite of the fact that they flunked these tests, God keep, is, keeps on having mercy upon them. He sweetened the waters when they grumbled the first time. He gave them bread from heaven when they grumbled the second time. And now he's going to give them water from the rock when they grumble the third time. It just shows how patient and how kind God is to us in our weakness and our failing and our sin. Isn't that good news? Because we're, we're fallen. We deal with sin on a daily basis. We, sometimes we give in to temptation, but the Lord is so kind to us. He doesn't give up on us. He's still faithful to be working in our life. Now, we learned last week that God gave them bread from heaven. And I don't know if you remember this, but the amount of bread that he was giving them every single day was equivalent to 10 trains, each train having 30 cars, and each car having 15 tons of food in it. It's like 10 trains with 30 cars with 15 tons are rolling into their camp every day and dumping all this food on the ground. That's how much food God was raining down from heaven. And he didn't do it one day. He did it day after day after day after day. Millions of tons of food God was delivering to his people. The faithfulness of God to provide for his own. Now, when we come to chapter 17, we see that their grumbling is even at a greater pitch than ever before. Because it does tell us in verse 4 that Moses was concerned that a little more and they would even stone him. That's how frustrated and angry the people had become with Moses. They're ready to stone him. Their faith was at an all-time low here. Troubles came in and their faith went out the window which is a really bad sign. <laughs> Whenever affliction comes and our faith goes out the window, something's wrong. And that's exactly what was going on with them. Now, let me find the verse here. Oh, verse 7. It says, God named the place, no, I'm sorry, Moses named the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? The word Massa means test. The word Meribah means quarrel. And that's why they named this place Quarrel and Test. Because God tested them and they quarreled with Moses and they grumbled against the Lord. But the last phrase there of verse 7 is really telling. This is what they were saying. Is the Lord among us or not? There's no food. Well, then God provides food. Now there's no water. So is the Lord among us? Because there's no water here. 
Now, God had proven himself to them over and over by this time, hadn't he? He sent the plagues on Egypt. He delivered them. He parted the Red Sea and delivered them from their enemies. He led them by the fire and cloud. He provided, or he sweetened the water that was bitter, and then he provided tons of food for them every single day. And now the first sign of trouble again, they start saying, well, is God really among us or not? They're doubting. They're questioning. Even though God has proven himself faithful. And don't we do that? God has been faithful to us, friends. Right? Hasn't God been faithful to you? Your needs have been provided. God has been with you. And so trouble comes in, and all of a sudden we start anxiously fretting and looking around, wondering, well, what's going to happen? Is, is God here or not? Of course he's here. And he's going to take care of, the, of you in the future, but you need to trust him. Amen. That's the lesson that the Lord has for us. Now, as we work our way through this passage, we're going to be looking at three, focusing on three things. First, the rock, then the smitten rock, and then the water that flowed from the smitten rock. Okay, first of all, the rock. God tells Moses in verse 5, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. God was going to be on the rock invisibly to everybody else, but he was there. And you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. Now, interestingly, there are many different situations and people and places in the Old Testament that are illustrations and pictures of New Testament truth. We call those types. Have you ever heard of a type? A type, well, I'll give you an example of a type. The, the Passover lamb. That was a picture, an illustration of Christ, who is the Lamb of God, whose blood would be shed so that God would pass over in judgment so that we don't come under his wrath. Right? That's a picture. It's an Old Testament event or person or situation that throws light on New Testament truth. The same is true of this rock here. Now, how do I know that? Because the Apostle Paul explicitly tells us that the rock was Christ. I want you to look with me over in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Okay, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 1 to 4. Paul writes here, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. So, you know the cloud he's talking about now, the cloud that led them. And all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. What was the spiritual food they were eating? Manna. The manna. Verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Okay, now we are on solid biblical ground now to go back to Exodus 17. And as we study through this paragraph and look at the rock, I want you to see Jesus Christ there. Because Paul says they're linked. That rock was to show something about Christ. Now, throughout the Bible, Jehovah is given the title of a rock many, many times. Jehovah God is called a rock. And I just want to introduce you to some of those passages quickly. We're just going to read through them. Uh, De Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 3 and 4. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. So here he says, ascribe greatness to our God, and then the very next line says, the rock. <laughs> so God is the rock. And then in Deuteronomy 32, verse 18, God says, you neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who 
who gave you birth. He's pointing out their sin. They were forgetting God, but God is the rock that actually gave them birth. Or if we were to go to 1 Samuel chapter 2, we find here a prayer of Hannah. And notice how Hannah prays in verse 2, 1 Samuel 2, 2. She says, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Hannah knew that God was a rock. Or 2 Samuel 22. This is a prayer of David. David wrote this psalm. 2 Samuel 22, verses 2 and 3. David says, My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. So here David refers to God as his rock, his fortress, his deliverer. If we were to move further into the Old Testament, we come to Psalm 19. Psalm 19.14 says this, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And then if we were to go even to the New Testament, in the book of Romans chapter 9, verse 33, Paul writes these words, Romans 9.33, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. So who is the rock of offense mentioned here by Paul? That if you believe in him, you won't be disappointed. Well, it, it is God, but specifically what person of the Trinity is being referred to? Jesus Christ. He's the rock of offense. You see, he was a stone of stumbling. People stumbled over Christ. So here, over and over, the Lord Jehovah God is referred to as a rock. Now, why? Why would that be such a common, favorite title to call God as a rock? Well, sometimes the, the writers of the Bible used rock because... A rock provides safety. Um, in fact, in Isaiah 33, 16, let me just refer to that for you. Isaiah 33, 16. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. And here a rock is said to be impregnable. You can't pregnate it. In other words, you can't penetrate it. Once you are sheltered behind this rock or under this rock, your enemies can't get to you. It's a place of protection, a place of deliverance, a place of safety, a place of shelter. So a rock can provide safety. Psalm 18, look at Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now think about all these words that he piles up to describe who God is. He says he's my rock. He's my fortress. A fortress is someplace you hide in to get away from your enemies, right? He's my deliverer. He's the one whom I take refuge in. He's my shield. Now, a shield is also a thing that protects you from the arrows or the, yeah, the arrows or the spear or whoever, the, the weapons of your enemy. So he's his shield and he's also his stronghold. All of those words help us understand what the psalmist meant by God as his rock. He's that one that protects him from danger and from harm. He's strong as a rock. When I think about this imagery, I think about the castles that Debbie and I saw back in Ireland last year. Because when you, you know, in medieval times, they would build these giant walls surrounding a castle. And then there was a moat with water, with a drawbridge. And then they had also a tower that would go up so they could, they could see their enemies approaching. And then the walls of the castles were, were like, like a foot thick. You know, the only way you could, 
knocked down at castles with a battering ram over and over and over. I mean, this was like an impregnable fortress built of rock. And that's who our God is. Did you know that nothing can get to you unless it goes through God first? Satan cannot get at you unless he goes through God. He has to get permission to even work against you. Sufferings can't get to you unless God permits them. Your trials can't come into your life unless God permits those trials. You are hid in a rock, in a rock fortress, a rock stronghold, just like a castle. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Those who run into it are safe, the Bible says. So that's who your God is, and that's why he's called a rock. But not only does a rock provide safety, it provides stability. Stability. Yeah. I think now about um, Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. He winds up the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, He who hears my words and acts on them, he is like a man who builds his house on the rock. And the rains came, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, but it stood, it did not fall, because it had been built on a rock. So a rock provides stability. If you want something solid or stable for your life, you need to build your life on Jesus Christ. Anything else is shifting sand. And we, we sang that hymn this morning, didn't we? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Any other place you put your confidence or your hope will be like sinking sand. It'll be like quicksand. You'll be destroyed. You'll end up dead and destroyed if you put your hope in yourself or somebody else or this new su supposed prophet out there or this guy on TV. You, you, put your hope in anything. Put it in your own goodness, your own morality, some other religious figure. If you put it anywhere but Jesus Christ, you're going to find yourself in sinking sand. But if you'll put your faith completely in Jesus Christ, you've got a bedrock that will hold you up in times of trial. And in the day of judgment, you'll be safe. So a rock provides safety. A rock provides stability. It's a good title for our God because he does provide safety and stability for all of us. Now let's turn our attention to the smitten rock. We've seen the rock. Now let's look at the smitten rock because in Exodus 17... God commands Moses to strike the rock. Now notice, first of all, when God told him to smite the rock and bring forth water. Was it when all the children of Israel were bowing low in worship that he told them to do that? Was it when they were trusting God fully to provide the water? <laughs> Was it when they were praising God for his abundant mercies? No way, right? It was when they were murmuring and complaining and full of unbelief and about ready to stone Moses. That's when God told him to strike the rock. <laughs> I love the comment that I read in uh, a commentary this last week by Jameson Fawcett Brown. This is what they say. God told Moses to smite the rock, not the rebels. Not to bring a stream of blood from the breast of the offenders, but a stream of water from the granite cliffs. Even when they were grumbling, God said, Moses, go strike the rock because I'm going to give them water. In spite of their sinfulness, I am going to refresh them. Yes, he sure is. He sure is. And all of that, you know, it just brought to my mind what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Did Christ die for us when we had it all together? <laughs> you know, <laughs> listen to what Paul says, Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now three times we are described here. Helpless, ungodly, and sinners. That's who we are. And that's who Christ died for. He, and he died for us when we were in that condition, not when we had become holy or sanctified. He died for us when we were ungodly, helpless, and sinners, just like the children of Israel.
The rock was smitten for them when they were grumbling and complaining. Now, what does this smitten rock picture for us? Well, think about it this way. Exodus chapter 16 pictures Jesus Christ coming down from heaven, just like that manna rained down from heaven for the people to provide food and nourishment for them. It pictures the incarnation of Christ. Christ came down from heaven and became a man. So chapter 16, Christ, the incarnation of Christ. Chapter 17, we have the crucifixion of Christ because now this rock is smitten. It's smitten. Just as Christ was smitten when he died and suffered for us. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 10. And this is a bit shocking. But it's written in scripture. It says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Who was pleased to crush Jesus Christ? The Lord. Jehovah was pleased to crush his son. And it doesn't say he was grieved to do it, although I'm sure he was in one sense, but it pleased him to crush his son and put his son to grief. Why? Because the rest of this chapter if he would render himself as a guilt offering, then he will see his offspring. That's us, believers. He'll prolong his days. In other words, Christ would be raised from the dead. His days would be prolonged. The good pleasure of the Lord would prosper in his hand. God has a plan of redemption, and that plan would succeed. But it would take Jehovah crushing his own son for that plan to be brought to fruition. As a result of the anguish of his soul, Christ will see it, that goes back to the seed, the offspring of verse 10, as a result of the anguish of his soul, Christ would see his offspring and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. So you see why God was pleased to crush him. There is an eternal plan that God had put into motion, but that plan would never actually come to fruition unless Jesus Christ was crushed and put, put to grief. And so the Father was pleased to do that to the Son. It's like in the Old Testament, Moses took the rod and hit the rock, but in reality, God took the rod and hit the Son and crushed him for sin. It wasn't just the actions of wicked men that put Christ on the cross. We read the story and we think, okay, it was the Romans' fault. They did it. The Romans nailed him. Or it was the Jews' fault because it was the Jewish leaders that went to Pilate and got him crucified. Or it's Pilate's fault. We, we try to find all these human beings to pin the blame on, but behind all of that, it was God's plan. God was orchestrating his plan behind it all. God was sovereign in all of this even in the wicked actions of men, to kill the Son of God. Now, the rock had to be smitten, or else all the people of Israel were going to perish there in the desert, in the wilderness. You can't live without water. You can only go a few days without water. And it would just be a matter of a few days until all, all two to three million of them were dead there in the wilderness. So, out of mercy, God says, smite the rock, water's going to come out, and my people will be saved. And the only way that sinners can be saved is for Jesus Christ to be smitten of God, to be struck down, to be crushed and put to grief. That's the only way sinners can be saved. They cannot be saved through the Muslim faith, the Hindu faith, the Buddhist faith. They cannot be saved through false cults. There is one gospel... Paul, or Peter puts it this way, there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're sinners and there must be someone who could pay the penalty for our sin.
And this one who pays the penalty for our sin can't simply be a human being like the rest of us, a fallen human being, because his death would only cover his own sin. It's got to be someone who doesn't have sin put to their account. And the only one that qualifies for that is God. So God has to become a man without being tainted by original sin. And he has to live a perfect life. And then he has to receive unto himself and absorb the wrath, the punishment due to us. That's why only the Christian faith makes sense. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. You see, no matter how many times you bow down and pray to Allah, you still don't have a Savior. There's no Savior in that faith. There's no God-man who took your sin to bear it away. All you have is this religion where you have to pray on this mat several times a day and fast once a month and go to a certain part of the world. and Or it, every religion has the same thing. It's a work-based system of trying to work your way to God. Christianity is the only one that says, God came to you. God became a man. He came down from heaven to you and he took your sin on himself and he bore that punishment so that you could have everlasting life. You see the difference? That's why only Christianity can save. Only Christ can save. You can't save yourself by your morality, your works, your prayers, your Bible reading, your church attendance, your baptism. None of that will save you. Christ alone can save you. Only Christ We've, we've looked at the rock and we've looked at the smitten rock. But let's look at the water from the smitten rock. Now remember how many of the Israelites we've got there in the wilderness, between two and three million. How much water does each person need per day? If it's just for drinking purposes, maybe a half a gallon a day. But you need water for other things than that, right? You need to wash they have clothes that need to be washed. They have livestock that need to be nourished with water. So probably at a bare minimum, you would need 5 million gallons of water a day. Okay? We're not talking about God just opening up a little hole in the rock and a little... You're going to need some rivers to take care of a group that big. And you know what God did? He brought rivers from that rock. I'll show you this. It's in Psalm 75. That was the only way that they could be sustained. Look at Psalm 75. Verse 15. Wait a minute. I'm in the wrong Psalm. Uh-oh. I think it's Psalm 78. It is. Correction. Psalm 78, verse 15. It says, He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. Talking about the abundance of the water. He brought forth streams, plural, also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. <laughs> so think of this massive rock and there are streams coming out of it. He smites the rock and all of a sudden coming out of that rock, you've got a stream over here and a stream over here and a big old river here. And many, many of these streams are flowing out of this rock and it's enough for everyone, including the livestock, to drink and be satisfied. So there was an abundance of water. Now what... If Christ is typified in the rock, right? The rock points to him. What does the water point to? Is The blood? Okay, that's a good guess. The Holy, the Holy Spirit? Let's take a look at what Jesus said. Jesus answers that question. So go over. We're going to look at several places here. Go to John chapter 4. We'll start there. Okay. In John chapter 4, we have the Samaritan woman and Jesus having a conversation. And notice what Jesus says in verse 10. He says to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
If you just knew the gift of God and who's speaking to you, you don't know who I am, but if you just knew that, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. Now look at verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water, earthly, material water, they will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but will but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. Okay, think about that. If Jesus gives you this living water, it's like a well inside of you. And whenever you need water, you have a well, and it springs up, and it satisfies you. <laughs> Isn't that great? There's this well inside of a believer, a well of living water that can satisfy his soul thirsts. Okay, now let's go to John 7. Look at verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Christ is the rock, and out of Christ flow rivers of not natural water, living, supernatural water. Okay, so if you come to Christ, He'll give you living water. That living water is like a well that springs up to eternal life. And verse 38 says that the believer, from, from the believer's innermost being, are going to flow these rivers of living water. So from your innermost being, your, your spirit or your soul, the innermost you is this, these rivers, not just one, but many rivers of water flowing from your life. Now, verse 39 gives us the answer to our question. But this he spoke of the what? The spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive, they hadn't yet, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus had to die, rise again, and ascend to heaven before he would pour out the Holy Spirit upon the church. So this water that he's talking about is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. God strikes the rock Jesus dies, and as a result of the death of Christ, we receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which are like waters, rivers, wells <laughs> that satisfy our deepest needs, our spiritual needs. Now, have you ever experienced having a well of water within you that springs up? I mean, have you experienced that? Have you experienced rivers of water within your innermost being? And it's very difficult to, to pinpoint exactly what that is like because it's going to be different in different people's lives. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit within you flowing from your life in various ways like giving you the ability to love somebody that you couldn't love before, or giving you the ability to overcome a sin or an addiction that you couldn't overcome before. Those are rivers, powerful rivers. Or giving you peace when you shouldn't, by all rights, have any peace at all, but you have it, the supernatural peace in your life. Or giving you joy even when you're going through trials. Okay, these are rivers. <laughs> the rivers of the Holy Spirit ministering to you, springing up, satisfying you. Have you experienced that? Now, there are, are, there are some Christians who say that you can be saved and not have the Holy Spirit. But that's not true. It's not true. Romans 8 9 says, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're none of His. You're none of Christ's. So if you're Christ's, you possess the indwelling Holy Spirit. He lives in you. And so even if you're walking through a metaphorical desert, you have a well inside of you. Maybe things are dry, 
but there's a well inside. You don't have to go around there or looking there or looking there trying to find a well. It's inside of you because the Spirit lives within you. The Spirit dwells within you like a well of water. <laughs> and He manifests Himself like rivers that spring up and not only satisfy your needs, but express the beauty of Christ through you to other people. Through the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, the attributes of Jesus Christ. And He exalts Jesus. The Bible says, Jesus said that He will glorify me. He'll take the things of me and He'll show them unto you. So those that, that's the water that comes forth from Christ. And it's the blessed portion of every Christian to enjoy and be satisfied by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if we're not receiving that ministry, then it's our fault because He dwells within the Christian. We're ignoring Him or neglecting Him. We're not seeking God like we ought if we're not experiencing those rivers. Now let me wind up our teaching today with three applications. Number one, we need to learn to trust God in our trials. We need to learn to trust God in our trials. The children of Israel, whenever trials came in, their faith went out and they began grumbling. They began murmuring. And what about you? When you go through a hard time, what happens? Do you trust the Lord or do you start whining and complaining and murmuring and why God did you allow this? Lord, why are you doing this? You know, just that whining spirit. We need to get above that. We need to grow beyond that, folks. Are you fully convinced that, yes, this trial is in my life, but God's going to bring me through it? Are you fully convinced of that? Then why not start praising Him now, even in advance, rather than grumbling about it? murmuring about it. Just start praising God. It reminds me of that story in, I think it's 2 Chronicles 20, when the children of Israel get word that three enemy armies are coming against them. And they start fasting and praying, and God sends a prophet to them, and he says, you don't need to worry about this, I'm going to go before you. Just watch what I do. <laughs> so what, what they did is they set their singers in the front line, not their warriors, their singers. And the singers start praising the Lord and worshiping the Lord as they start marching towards enemies of three armies against them. And God sets an ambush and they start killing off each other. And when they finally arrive, they see this decimated battlefield and they didn't have to lift a finger. They went into that battle with praise and God delivered them. And I want to encourage you to learn to praise God even in the battle, <laughs> even in the trial. Start praising God and saying, Lord, I know you're going to deliver me. You're, you've been faithful in the past. You're going to be faithful in the future. I just want to give you praise because I know you're going to deliver. You're going to provide here. So we need to learn to trust God in trials. Number two, we need to learn to go to Christ for the water of life. And that's true for non-Christians as well as for Christians. If you're not saved this morning, you need to go to Jesus Christ because he's the only one that can save you. He's the only one that has the water that you need. But for Christians, we can find ourselves becoming dry, especially if we've been neglecting our spiritual life. We need to go back to the rock. That's where the water comes from, right? If, if they had gone off into the wilderness five miles, they're not going to find any water there. They've got to go back to that rock if they need to drink. And so we need to continually come back to Christ day by day. Christ is our life. He's our life. And so learn, when you're starting to feel that rest, restlessness of soul or that emptiness of soul, and you've been trying by watching TV or drinking this or eating that or trying to find something in the world to fill yourself up and it's not working, <laughs> it will never work. Christ is the only one that can fill up your soul. So go back to Him. And then thirdly, we need to accurately represent the Lord. Now let me just share with you why I'm even saying that. Forty years after this first time when Moses smote the rock, forty years later, there's almost an exact 
replication of this situation. I want to show it to you. Okay, so go in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20. The children of Israel have been traveling for 40 years. And they're getting to where they're almost at the promised land. And let's pick up the story here in Numbers 20, verse 8. The Lord says to Moses, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. Do you see anything different about this time? Yeah, the first time he was supposed to smite the rock, what does he do this time? He speaks to it. Now that's a real key difference. Keep that in mind. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. God says, take your rod, but don't use it. Instead, speak to the rock. Moses disregarded the Lord's command. Why? Because he was angry. He says, you rebels, you're always murmuring. You're always grumbling. Bam, bam. He, he takes the rod and hits it twice. He's in direct disobedience to what God had told him to do. And God dealt severely with Moses. Moses' greatest desire would have been to go into the promised land. He's been traveling 40 years. He's the leader, and he doesn't get to go in. God, That was God's chastisement because he directly disobeyed God on this point. Now, why was this such a big deal? Think about the type with me. In Exodus 17, Moses strikes the rock. Water comes out. This time, he's not supposed to strike the rock. He's supposed to speak to the rock. And water comes out. You see, if he, when he struck the rock, he spoiled the type. Because once Jesus is crucified once, he never has to be crucified again. His death is good once for all time, Scripture says. Uh, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. So by Moses striking the rock, it spoiled God's typology. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the, the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, is actually Christ being sacrificed again, and again, and again, and again. I, evidently, they don't believe that the once and for all sacrifice of Christ was sufficient for all time for all people. But that's what the Bible teaches. So once Christ has died once, he never needs to suffer again, never needs to die again. So how do we receive the living waters? You speak. To the rock. Romans 10.13 says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You need to call upon the name of the Lord. You need to speak to Christ. You need to say, Lord, have mercy on my soul. Save me by your death, by your bloody death. Please grant me everlasting life through your Son. You speak to the rock and the waters come to you and flood over you. You see, Moses did not properly represent the Lord. Moses was angry with them. And God wasn't angry. God was merciful. God was patient. God was kind. So here's Moses beating on that rock. And he wasn't doing what God had said. And he's not representing God the way God wanted to be represented. And there is a huge truth in this for us. God wants us to be his representatives. You know, that's the Christian life, is simply representing Christ to the world. It's not like the Christian life is not trying to keep a list of do's and don'ts and rules and regulations and then you're good. 
The Christian life is Jesus. It's a relationship with Christ. It's representing Christ to others and allowing Him to be that soul-satisfying one to you. That's the Christian life. For to me, to live is Christ, Paul says, and to die is gain. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. These are expressions of what the Christian life is. But here Moses strikes the rock, misrepresents God, and God takes it very seriously. And when we misrepresent Him to the world and to those around us, God will chastise us. He simply wants us to represent Him. So that means if God is angry about something, then we ought to be angry. And God is angry about many things going on in the world. He's angry at sin. He's angry with sinners every day, the Bible says. But also, if God is merciful towards people, then we need to express that mercy of God to others. If God is loving, we need to express His love. If God is patient, we need to be patient. You can fill in the blanks here, right? You know what I'm talking about. We just simply need to express who Christ is to other people around us, to this world. And to the extent we don't do that, watch out, because God's going to get his spanking spoon. He's going to deal with you because he wants you to represent him accurately. And that's our big problem. We, we do what we want to do. We do our will instead of doing his will and representing him in the world. So... Christianity, don't fixate on rules, laws, regulations, do's and don'ts. Focus on a person, your relationship with this person. We've been reading through as a church Romans, right? Romans chapter 7 says, we're no longer married to the law, but we are married to Christ. And that's the only way you can bear fruit for God, is to be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead. So think about the, your Christian life as being married to Christ. The most intimate of all relationships is that of marriage. He's the husband, you're the bride, and by being joined to him, you can now bear fruit for God. Unless, unless you're married to Christ, unless you have that relationship, you'll never be able to bear God's fruit. It takes relationship. It takes intimacy for that to take place. Well, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray that we would take heed this morning. Lord, help us to be diligent, to walk with you daily, to get up in the morning with you on our minds, to seek you in prayer, to open your word, to let you speak to our hearts. We pray that Christ would be the one who satisfies us with living water and that rivers of living water truly would flow from our lives. The Lord, you would do supernatural things through each one of us. Anyway, we pray these things through the blessed name of our Savior Jesus Christ this morning. Amen. Amen.